The way of approaching, you know, traditional piano technique is a little bit too cut and dry, you know, just technique. What is the best way to really synthesize human emotion and physical motion, which is really what a dancer does? Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm your host, Barbara St. Clair, and today I'm with Rebecca Pennies, who is a concert pianist, a Steinway artist in residence, a teaching artist in residence. Uh, what else are you? How else would I describe you? <laughs> well, I guess you could say many things. I'm professor of piano at Eastman. This is my 37th year, Eastman School of Music in New York. And believe it or not, I commute there every other week teach a class of 18 international students. I am also Steinway artist at St. Pete College. Um, I don't teach students there, at least not yet, but I run the SPC piano series. And I'm Steinway artist in residence at USF, which is something that I just became. And I also don't teach there, <laughs> but it's a nice title. And uh, what I do in the summers is I run the Rebecca Penny's Piano Festival, which is a tuition-free three-week summer program for um, really very serious young aspiring pianists. We have 40 pianists from about 20 countries, and we have an international faculty of 16. And anyway, that's my love. And uh, when I get tired of commuting back and forth, I will build the festival at USF, which is just, as you know, beautiful, wonderful new facility. So, Rebecca, you are a bona fide child, or you were a bona fide child. (laughs) Thank you for correcting that. And you made your performance debut at nine years old with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. Right. But you were also a a ballet student, and you had to decide whether you wanted to pursue dance or pursue music. That's right. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, when I was a little girl, I started dancing probably at three, and I started playing the piano by ear. I don't even remember. You know, I mean, it's just we had a piano in the house, so that's what was my toy. That was my magic box. Anyway, I excelled in both, and uh, I just loved to dance, and I really wanted to be a dancer, and I guess... My, um, I, I don't guess. My parents wanted me to be a musician. They felt that it would have much more longevity and stability and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I did both. And um, at 17, went to the Chopin International Piano Competition and got an unprecedented prize there. And I should have, had I been, I want to say, a normal person, <laughs> in quotes, would have gone on to accepting the Deutsche Grammophon recording contract and other things, but because I just had this burning desire of, I have to dance, I have to dance, I came back uh, to the United States, auditioned for the San Francisco Ballet Company and danced for two years. I didn't touch the piano. And then I realized, gee, you know, I think it would be better for me to be a pianist because I, I missed, I so much missed the music that I played in comparison to ballet music. And my options were either form your own company and play your own music, the music you love, or as you get older, it's tougher and tougher to dance. Just go back to the piano. So I made this compromise in my head, which was that I would uh, learn to dance while playing the piano. 
And my whole emphasis has been to sort of feel like a dancer and move like a dancer at the piano. And the benefit of that is that I'm great at teaching the most efficient and easy way to play the instrument without any stress or pain. And, you know, it really reduces your practice hours. I've never been one that wants to sit alone in a room for six hours. <laughs> That's just not me. 17, you won the Special Critics Prize at the 7th International Chopin Music Competition in Warsaw. Piano competition, right. Right. And then you came back and were the professional ballerina for two a couple years. of, for two years. And then I went back. And then you went back to piano. So really, as a, 17 is, is obviously still a teenager, but I, you want to sort of say that's a young adult and you had a professional life there. So you actually achieved two stellar things right away because many people well, are not professional ballerinas by the time they're 17 or right. 18. Well, you know, the upbringing of a child prodigy is a little different. Well, let's talk I about mean, it, that. It has uh, very, very positive aspects to it and maybe kind of a kickback <laughs> too. So were your parents musicians themselves? No. <laughs> no. They just happened to have a piano in the house. Well, it's my mother's brother was... Uh, a pianist, and he was—he uh, had a really promising career in front of him, but uh, decided to become a Hollywood movie composer and was—and uh, worked in Hollywood for some years. Uh, so that's how the piano was, like, left there. My father was a doctor, and uh, my. You know, I, I mean, I remember my mother telling, you know, people used to ask, how did you know your daughter was so talented? Well, it, you know, everybody said that because she could sing anything, you know, have perfect pitch. And, it, you know, it's like one of these things that stood out. So um, when my cousin or anybody would come over to the house and they would sit at the piano, I would play. I would play back what they were playing or something off the radio. So, you know, when I started dancing around the house and my father said, you know, maybe... She, you want dance lessons? I said, yes. He said, well, that's much cheaper than breaking all the furniture in the house. <laughs> you know, that's how we got started with all of it. And then, you know, one dance class led to two or three a week. And and then what about piano lessons? I'm sure they sent you yeah, to a teacher for uh, that, too. Of course. Yeah. I mean, well, my brother started taking piano, and I remember the first time my mother took me. And, you know, I was waiting with her sort of in the other room. And, he was trying to learn this piece or whatever, and I said, why can't I go in and play it? Why can't I go in and play it? But she said, you can't, you can't. And when we got home, I played it all the way through from memory. And my brother was extremely discouraged after a few, <laughs> you know, a few episodes. Not fair, huh? Not fair. And, you know, so I got piano lessons, and he drifted away from the piano and, you know, went into other things. But it so was that kind of a gift. You seem very normal as a human being, just a few minutes of talking together. And um, there is this sort of, at least a social myth about child prodigies of like being super high strung and absolutely nuts by the time they hit adulthood. But you're very normal. So how did you manage to have a, a somewhat balanced childhood as a piano prodigy? Well, as a, I think as a child, I didn't have a balanced life. I mean, you know, you're precocious in in one or two like in dance and music and that takes a lot of time so you're not really well socialized in school I can remember after grammar school which was relatively okay because you're 
not as isolated by achievement. But after that, um, junior high, high school, um, I always ate lunch by myself in some little corner. I wasn't able to communicate very easily, and I was too different. So my life consisted of these classes, teachers, um, walking our dog, and the other thing and when I was in high school that I did very well was, and I integrated well, is uh, in gym. I was on the swim team as if I needed more exercises, but I've always loved to swim. And, and I think that one can safely say uh, any, any child prodigy that, you know, really was, uh, I don't want to say isolated to that extent, would tell you, um, and successful, that there's a break point where you have to deal with this all being, this stuff all being different. And um, I've had a lot of therapy. And uh, one of the things that became really uh, obvious to me by the time uh, I got into college was I really, really loved helping others. I mean, I really like giving the gift of live performance, but giving the gift of live performance is only one little thing. You still need to give the information in. And I mean, I'll never, ever forget the class I had with Gene Kelly. And I was struggling with pirouettes on one side. And he, you know, he worked with me for 10 minutes. I mean, he just stopped teaching the class. And I had this little mini private lesson. And I had this major breakthrough. You know, and I was very fortunate to have really extraordinary mentors. And, uh, I guess I feel that to make a better world, well, first of all, I'm all about making a better world. And I wanted, and I did start this festival so that I could give a gift to 40 pianists that are really not my students, just they all audition. And I just wanted them to feel this energy and get this knowledge that you catch, you know, you don't read it from a book, it's alive. And then, uh, all of this stuff grows like a beautiful plant inside you. And I think, you know, my subjective feeling is, and this is how you make a better world, tell this kind little, of energy. Tell me a little bit more about the festival itself. It's a, It's been going on for how many years? This now? is our, will be, 2017 will be our fifth year. And it takes place here in Florida. It does, USF Tampa in that beautiful new building. And how does it work? People apply? People apply. There's a website, RebeccaPennySpanoFestival.org. And students, you know, the best way to recruit for any school or summer festival is uh, the student grapevine. So the students hear about it because they love what it does. So we get about 120 applications every season, and we accept 40. And they have an intense day every day. We have two sort of vacation days. One is a dolphin cruise, and the other one... Uh, is a beach day, and on one of those two days, they visit the Chihuly Museum and pulls along with the glass. And, you know, we do um, a lot of things that can't be easily covered in an academic setting because, you know, you have your semester and you have your weeks all planned out. And, you know, academia is wonderful. It is what it is. And then there's everything else that just doesn't fit into that particular sandwich, which is just so delicious. So you have so that's what we do. So it's they, the students who attend, they, they don't have to pay to attend, right? Well, there's a, a registration fee, but everything else is covered for them, and they have a ball. And who are some of the faculty that you've had in the past or might be having in the future? Well, we have um, 
this summer we have Norman Krieger from Indiana. We have Alan Chow from Northwestern. We have Steve Lates from Juilliard. We have uh, Christopher Harding from Michigan. We have uh, Mayron Song from University of Maryland. We actually have almost every major uh, music school that has really first class uh, pianists that go on to careers, like I want to say performing careers. Uh, Blanca Uriba from South America. Um, Michael Lewin from Boston University. So, you know, we have 16 faculty, and, yeah. which is uh, every, and, and another thing that's very interesting is they come, they come for three or four days. Uh, so we have three or four teaching faculty, and then we have another crew that comes in. And the way it works, which is completely different than any other festival, is, uh, you know, the students can have a lesson every day with a different person if they want to. And I think one of the things that they like, and I can, I can get into this as a former student, they like playing the same Beethoven sonata, you know, for eight different people. And I'm there to say, you know, don't worry if you're a little confused because you're hearing eight different world-class perspectives. You'll sort it out later. And they really get into that. And um, I think that's a terrific learning experience because for, let's say, if you're not a musician, it would be like going to eight capitals of the world. And yes, they do blend in a little bit when you're traveling, but later on, you know, you can say why you really liked Paris or why you really liked London or why you really liked Prague, etc. You know, there's certain resonances that you take away from that and that really shape you. So what kind of feedback have you gotten from students who have attended? Great. <laughs> it's, all, it's all over the website. They love it. Some come back for two or three times. Uh, but, you know, there's a little, if you go to the festival uh, on the homepage, there's a little video and it shows, uh, you know, I think it really conveys the energy and the spirit. One of the things that the students love about it is that there isn't a competition. And I purposely set it up that way. There's a lot of performing experience. We have something called uh, the RPPF um, ambassador performances and they're about eight or ten performances throughout Tampa Bay and St. Pete every night or every afternoon. And they love to perform, of course, and we send three or four out. So they really like this uh, combination of um, as many lessons as you want, yum, 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 as many dishes to eat as you can imagine. And I can also go and perform. And we have showcase concerts and we have fun and they they don't feel competition with one another and I feel that that's such an important thing. And they feel relaxed and they talk about uh, sharing uh, information and learning from each other. Yay! You know, that's what you want. We want that kind of feeling all the time on earth that if, you know, if one country felt that it could learn from another hmm. instead of you know, having like fiction and fighting, let's share. Well, I think something that I didn't realize until you just said that is how many opportunities there are for audiences during your festival um, to hear live music, to hear live piano playing. Right, it's all on the website and I'm gonna try to do a better uh, job at advertising, but uh, we don't charge for admission. We suggest donations. The festival is entirely donor supported and uh, and it started really with the kind help from people in New York um, because uh, my husband and I moved down here not, 
I didn't think I was going to be uh, moving my New York summer festival program. But we realized, that we, you know, we fell in love with the area. But we don't, well, we know a few people now. But when we moved down here, we didn't know anybody. So um, the festival, is, you pretty much usually have it in the month of July? Yes. All right. So that uh, people can start writing that on their calendars for every year to get ready for being right. part of the audience. Absolutely. That would be absolutely so festival. terrific. Yeah, we have um, concert or a masterclass uh, every day. So... You had you alluded to this earlier. You have an, uh, a way of teaching people to play the piano that is easier on their bodies than maybe more traditional ways. Can you talk about that a little well, bit? Well, I, I decided, um, I guess, I don't know, almost 50 years ago, that the way of approaching, you know, traditional piano technique is a little bit too cut and dry, you know, just technique. So I concocted this phrase called motion and emotion, which is designed to uh, convey that you want to combine what is the best way to really synthesize um, human emotion and physical motion, which is really what a dancer does. Uh, your movements, I mean, if you want to be graceful in your movements as a dancer, you don't come out with a fist and punch in, you know, space. And it's the same thing with piano, you know. So if you want to make a beautiful sound, you would do it much the way you would pet a dog or your cat. or You know, it's a gentle, loving motion. So I think I'm the only one that, well, the only one that I know that knows dance well enough to kind of, um, translate that language into teaching an instrument, and specifically the piano. And I initially did it because I love to dance. And uh, believe it or not, the subtext of that whole experience of childhood is um, I was much more physically comfortable as a dancer. I could dance Giselle, the role to Giselle. And at the end of two and a half hours, I wouldn't feel as tired as if I would sit down and play four or five Chopin etudes, which are really very hard. And I thought to myself, why is that? And I got into it in great depth and realized that, um, well, first of all, you use bigger muscle groups when you dance, which I think is an advantage to natural coordination and flow. But um, I just hadn't really figured out, I wasn't, so well taught in piano about the most efficient and easiest way to use your body when you're in a sitting situation. So, you know, as a result of this knowledge that I brought to the piano, a lot of people who have had tendonitis or who have carpal tunnel or, you know, I mean, I'm really good at, at helping with that because um, when I play the piano, I feel like I'm having a massage. <laughs> and so I know that that is a possible goal so if I were trying to play the piano right now, what would you say to me that would help me understand how to use my body well, differently? Well, I think, I don't know, I'd have to see you at the piano, but just from the gestures you're making, I would have to say first that you probably need to learn how to sit in a supported but relaxed position, and you also need to learn how to breathe. You need to understand how to use gravity, and all these things are what you use when you're a dancer. Um, well, you know, even though I'm just thinking of swimming, when you're swimming, you swimming isn't a gravity sport, which is why I like it. But still, you know, you have to have an alignment. You have to have rhythm. It's a, it's a big subject. And if you've seen, you know, when you watch really good swimmers, they're beautiful. 
or ice skaters or so do you ever meet resistance from your students who are have been taught in a much more kind of formal rigid well most of the students by the time they get college age you know if you say can I show you an easier way of doing it that sounds better they go yes and even if they at first don't think so um, I have an interesting student right now who couldn't understand why things should be easier and I didn't want to say, well, in 40, by the time you're 40, you're going to be in a lot of pain. So just take some advice now. But I said, why don't you just try this? And now he says, oh, wow, it makes such a difference. I can learn so much faster and it's so much easier. You know, So I don't think there's ever too much resistance because you know nothing breeds success like success. And you just have to go far enough with your experiment just to, you know, to open the window, even if you just crack the window, then all the new information comes in. So um, I've always been one, you know, like if, if I hear or see somebody doing something, you know, that I want to learn that I can't do, I love learning new things. And I think that that's the kind of energy I give out and the kind of energy that the kids pick up. So we haven't talked yet about you as a performer, but I'm looking at a list of concerts that you've done, and you seem to have uh, mastery across many different composers, uh, Chopin, Beethoven, Gershwin, Liszt, Bartok. I'm, I'm looking at this, and, and what I often notice is people seem to have a, a group of composers or a repertoire. You're repertoire and your composers just seems uh, almost universal. Well, that's a very nice compliment, but I think it's just, um, you know, the piano literature is very, very diverse. And I've gone through different periods, but uh, I'm well-schooled enough to be to play in all styles, which is actually what I like to teach. I think it's a responsible thing to do and in a historical performance way. Uh, but then, you know, it was a long period where I was interested in performing only music by living composers. There was a long period uh, where I was doing a lot of Gershwin. And in fact, one of my projects is uh, to bring um, the first piano that George Gershwin bought from Steinway here. I actually happened to be the owner of it, and I didn't realize this until a few months ago. It's a little Steinway, and I think it would be really nice to have that piano and have music of Gershwin performed on it. So that's a thing. But, you know, I, for a long time, owned a piano that Rachmaninoff recorded on, so I played a lot of Rachmaninoff. And you're exposed to different things. Like if you hear, I'm the kind of person, like I, if I would hear a beautiful piece of music or something that attracted me, I would just go and learn it. So. I have never been one that could play the same pieces over and over again, and I'm a very quick learner, so that's part of, I think, why you see this diversity. Uh, many performers, you know, they learn one program and they play it for two seasons, but I'm always changing because I'm always exploring, and that's part of the thing, like if you make a CD or a DVD, when I never listen to anything I've done because I'm already like, Oh, well, why did why did I do it that way? I could have done it this way because I think you know I live I like to live in my imagination and projects and creativity. So that's what I 
That's what I do. I'm, I'm not a person that follows a recipe when I cook. So which, in short. which composer is living in your imagination now? Well, I'm going to be getting into this Gershwin project, I think. heard about you, I think you were playing Brahms. You were doing something at Peace Memorial? Yeah, we could have been a chamber concert. We did uh, all the, well, this season we did uh, two of the Brahms piano quartets. So talk to me about Brahms. What do, you, what do you like about him and what did you like about those Odd quartets? that you should ask that question because I own an 1891 Steinway D that could have been played by Brahms just has that sound and it's rebuilt in that kind of sound context which is quite different much rounder and less brittle but well what can you say about Brahms a lot of things um, I made a whole CD of Brahms half of it was his Klavierstück piano pieces and the other half which I just adore uh, are the Brahms Hungarian dances uh, and that's part of his chamber music work uh, the original was for um, piano duet, and he arranged this music for one piano, and I always have called it in my deepest sense, you know, Brahms's version of Kill the Pianist, <laughs> because they're so hard. But what fascinates me is his sense of uh, architecture, his sense of sonority and beautiful colors, his ability to write so pianistically, and in the sense, in the case of these Hungarian dances, uh, not one of the melodies is original, and it's all street music. And so I like this idea of blending the folk element into this really traditional um, historical context that he was involved with. So you know, every composer is unique in that way or in a special way. The other thing that was fascinating about Brahms is, you know, uh, there is a little teeny tiny recording of Brahms, the first Edison cylinder roll. And if you can get past the, you know, you know, all of the bad recording sounds, you hear this phenomenal gift, even though it's only like 45 seconds long. So those things, you know, there's, this, there's always millions of stories like that. What gets you involved with well, a composer for a while? What you said about Brahms also reminds me about Gershwin. That sort of evoking of other, more, more home music. Well, I music. think it, in a sense, that's what classical music was. It used to be played in a home. You know, like, for instance, if you take Chopin, he hated to perform. He played in salons and living rooms, and he would um, improvise as he was performing his music. So, you know, it wasn't... I mean, I do this thing called Rediscovering Chopin, where I improvise, and I've just finished a DVD about all of that. But I think that's what makes it alive, and I think young pianists should learn how to uh, get inside the music to that degree, that you sort of become part composer, even though you have to know where the line is. Uh, one of the first things 
years ago when I got involved with Gershwin and I actually did record Rhapsody in Blue, the solo version. And that is uh, a, a version that I lifted in one of my little projects off uh, player piano roll because he made he made a, a player piano version of that, but it was one, he put down one track and then they did another track and they merged those two tracks. And I thought, wow. I wonder what it would be like to try to play those two tracks together. So that's the version, and I. But that's how I started to get to know Gershwin, and uh, the story about this piano is actually very, very funny because my cousin called and said, you know, there's um, this same uncle that eventually moved back to uh, New York and bought a piano, and I don't, I didn't know anything about it, and his daughter called and said, you know, we, we really need to sell the piano. Nobody plays and da-da-da-da-da, do you want it, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, what's the serial number of it? And I called Steinway, and Steinway called me back, and they said, are you sitting down? I said, yeah, I'm sitting down. What's up with this little Steinway? And this is the story. They sent me the bill of sale with Gershwin's name on it, and I said, wow. She said, yeah, this is a historical piano. In one way, it's worth a fortune, and in another way, it's not worth so much because it's, you know, it hasn't had any attention for playing for what 40 years 50 years I, but I said I'll take it you know because it's it's yeah. the same chair it's everything is original just as wow. he left it you know so that in a sense is be exciting so you know you yeah I mean I think what uh, I think none of these composers are different than George Gershwin it's just that we're more in touch and actually this is why in a way it's easier to teach living composers and it's very exciting sometimes for young people to get involved with living composers because it's alive instead of dead you have to you have to re you have to have a long arm <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to get you know realize that list was an entertainer when he sat down he would wear bracelets and he would jingle them around and he would you know it's nice to, fun that's real education i think to get in there so it stays alive listening to a performance of yours, actually watching it sort of on YouTube, which is really fun. YouTube. YouTube. Um, and what did strike me is that your sound felt very round and very holistic and very uh, multi, like there was a lot of sound within the sound. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. That's what I strive for. So I'm glad you received that, even on YouTube. Um, so I'm certain that there's, you said that you strive for that, so there's a purposefulness in getting that. But is it also partly your, 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 your voice as a musician? Well, I think music is a healing art. Yeah, you know, whether it's healing uh, emotionally or um, uh, physically or socially. And it's a loving art. And I think that when you play this kind of music, it really deserves a really beautiful, loving, and layered sound that can uh, that has some kind of dimension to it. You know, so I've strived a lot to uh, make my sound reflect the sort of the vision that all these composers had. You know, Beethoven was a colorist. If you sit down in one of his later forte pianos, that instrument has really beautiful color. The fact that it's out of style or that it's more limited, that doesn't mean that it still wasn't beautiful. And 
there's no question, you know, why did why do people compose? Why do they take these trips in their head or wherever they go <laughs> to create art? In any way, it's about beauty and love and, you know, that. And I think that uh, that has to come together in live performance. So I want to ask you about a live performance that I, somebody told me they, they saw or experienced, but it was like four pianos and eight hands. Oh, no, it and happens every year. We have two every year. What is it's it? It's called Two Piano Eight Hands Extravaganza. And uh, it started as kind of, well, it's the, it's the original title started as uh, what pianos and pianists do for fun. Because at a certain point, you know, you it, classical piano playing and performing is so serious. And I thought, well, what would happen if we just weren't so serious, you know? So I usually do it with three former students. Um, that's easy because they're all trained similarly and, you know, they have a certain ease of playing. And we get together uh, usually a day and a half before the concert. I pick the music and the par individual parts are not hard, but it's hard to play it together. And we do, you know, like stuff happens, whether uh, we wear costumes or, I mean, you know, just funny stuff happens where you can laugh while you're playing and the audience has a good time. And we have a great time and we do one at USF now every summer during the festival and we do one sometime, I think it's in April this year at St. Pete College, gives campus on the series. And yeah, it's it's a fun thing to do. We all look forward to it. And the audience is a regular. <laughs> it's like, oh, what are you going to do next year? I said, I don't know yet. But they love it. So you really have, is it two pianos? It's two pianos and two pianists on each piano. So Well, you have four people and two pianos. One, two, three, four. So does... One person play just the, the Each bass? person gets a half a piano. But sometimes it doesn't work that way because you have to cross, And do, you pe know. do people get up and move around yeah, and switch? Yeah, sometimes stuff? we do that if we have enough time to rehearse. Yeah, there's one piece, um, Copeland's Rodeo, where I was I ran around the pianos. And just it kind of depends on the setup and how, you know, what happens. We do, uh, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. It's... It's not serious classical stuff because, well, everything has been arranged for the for that because, you know, in the olden times before there was YouTube and widespread publishing and recording, uh, you would get one score. And then if you wanted to hear the music, you know, you had to sit down <laughs> and play it yourself. But because for the average household, these were, you know, like who could play a Brahms symphony? So if, if it were for two pianists on one piano, it's a lot easier to get the idea. So but there's a huge body of published arrangements. But we don't do too much of that because this is for fun. So we specialize in short pieces and have a good time. And we do Country Gardens by Granger and we give the audience, the students, you know, in the audience flowers while we're playing. And it's it's just what it is. So come if you can. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to. Hard to describe. <laughs> you play in New York or do you usually play? Well, I play solo and chamber music. Mm -hmm. I have a, my uh, piano trio a long time ago won the Nalberg Chamber Music Award. Um, 
So I was bitten by the chamber music bug early, and I just love to play music for piano and strings. I played almost everything written for that combination, for piano, violin, and cello, and the piano quartet. So, you know, it's a different thing completely, but that music is really nice because it's, you know, it's more than one sound source. The strings and piano, or winds and piano, make a beautiful combination. And small ensembles are easy to rehearse. Well, I know we've been talking about your concerts here in, in the Pinellas County area, but you are internationally known. Well, I have, yeah. I mean, I have in recent trips tried to, um, well, when I went to Asia, I, I performed, but I also taught a lot, gave master classes. i just interested in doing both. Um, I feel like things are left incomplete if you just perform and you walk away because there are a lot of questions that are unanswered for the students in, in the audience. And I went to um, um, South America for a week, and there was a kind of a seminar, a festival, Chopin event, and I played, and then I, I stayed there for 10 more days teaching uh, everybody, you know, that wanted to come and play for me. And I like to teach different levels. that You don't have to be like a star, uh, because... You know, potential is potential, and everybody has a gift. And uh, it's always a learning experience. On a, it's a different kind of learning experience when you perform. That's when you get uh, nourishment for your own creative ideas. And when you're teaching, uh, you know, you really feel like you're passing uh, so much important material. And also you get a handle for what's happening in the world, a very, you know, close look. Uh, what this person, where they're from, what, you know, where their mind is, where their spirit is. So I like doing it all. So I, I'm, you know, I'm always trying to juggle it so that it comes out right. It's hard to get the proportions of everything just right, as you probably know. Absolutely. So thank you. I'm here with Rebecca Pennies. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. And please come and come to the festival. It's free. been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can hear more of their great work and some wonderful conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists at our website, creativepinellas.org. This is Barbara St. Clair. Thank you for listening.